Hello and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to learn about the most inspiring people living, working, and recreating on the American shorelines. So we have an extra special episode lined up for you today. One, because it's my 20th episode and I love a good milestone and a good reason to celebrate. Milestones are also great for taking time to reflect on progress and remember things, um, all of the things that we have to be grateful for, like the incredible people that I have the privilege of speaking with on this show, and set our sights on what's next, which will hopefully be 20 plus more episodes because this is an opportunity that I am having a lot of fun with and really cherish. And second, in light of said milestone, I have invited on someone who has been very influential and inspiring to my life, um, especially relating to my career in conservation. She is a dear friend of mine, a total badass, and my counterpart in running the Healthy Oceans Coalition. So without further ado, it is a pleasure to welcome to the show, Sarah Winterbelin. Hello. Hi. And just for a disclaimer for listeners, (laughs) um, we are recording this episode in person, which is a treat, but we are at the co-working space that we operate out of in Boston. And the room that we are in is service elevator adjacent. So there may be a little funky background noise occasionally throughout the episode, but we are just going to roll with it. Um, so bear with us. Um, so let's get going. So Sarah, as someone who has listened to the show, yes, you are familiar with the fact that yes, we will get into a discussion about your, um, or I should say our work, yeah. but the driver behind this show really is getting to know the human behind the advocate, um, to get a better, get to know who you are, what motivates you and the path that you took to get here today. So let's start by looking back and hearing a little bit about where you're from Mm -hmm. and what it was like growing up there. Mm, Yeah. So I am from the heartland of our country. I grew up in northern Illinois um, and not like Chicago, Illinois, right? That everyone thinks of like glitzy glass and the lake (laughs) and the the river and glitzy glam and beautiful. I grew up in a different beautiful part of the state, which is two hours outside of Chicago, closer to the Iowa border than Chicago and 30 minutes south of the Wisconsin border. And to get in and out of my town, you have to go through cornfields, like every exit in and out of town. Like my town is surrounded by corn and soybean fields. So very much nowhere near the ocean, which is probably <laughs> why to this day my family looks at me a little wonky and, and wonders how I got to be where I am today. Um, but I did. I somehow found my way to the ocean, um, even though I grew up quite far from it. Um, but I, I think I... I think probably the easiest way to explain how that happened is 
My dad actually partially grew up in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I grew up as a kid going to Florida for every sort of holiday break over mm-hmm. the winter um, and just kind of fell in love with it. I mean, quite frankly, who doesn't fall in love with the ocean? Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's how, that's a little bit of my background. Um, but seriously, my family still definitely looks at me a little like, how did you end up, you know, going from cornfields to ocean loving? Um, but I think that that's probably the like easiest connection. I also was really inspired at a young age to um, uh, lean into that path by um, a science teacher that I had in, I think it was seventh grade. Her name was Barb Spudich. And, um, <laughs> shout out to Barb. <laughs> shout out to Barb. Um, and she was, she was like, if you love this, do it. You know, mm-hmm. so she was an educator who didn't tell kids to think about the logistics of growing up in Illinois, but loving the ocean. Um, And I remember we took an Amtrak down to the Keys in seventh grade and spent, which I was privileged enough to do, right? That like my family had the funds that allowed me to have that experience. So I Mm -hmm. recognize the privilege of being able to do that, to foster the love. So even though my parents didn't necessarily understand why I love the ocean so much, they encouraged it and were able to help facilitate that. Um, So that's probably a lot more than you actually asked me to just answer. This is so great. And I think it really speaks to the importance of, you know, taking those opportunities. Mm -hmm. If you have them to get outdoors and see how formative that really can be to the path that you take growing up, whether you choose a career in conservation or Mm -hmm. just really enjoy the outdoors. And I think it also speaks to something which I don't know if we really mentioned on the show before about how important educators can be Mm. to shaping that path that you take too. Because I I feel like most people listening to the show and then including myself can think back to who were those people as you were coming up through school that really sparked that interest in you, whatever subject it may be. But they're, uh, you know, educators are so hardworking. And I think just like folks in the conservation world, sometimes mm-hmm. it's a really thankless job. Super um, thankless. So to take a moment just to thank all of the educators out there. Um, we appreciate you. There are people out there you get that have helped shape me, helped shape Sarah and all of our listeners. So you guys rock and, you know, keep up the good work. <laughs> um, something else that I'm curious about, knowing that you grew up in a landlocked state. Mm-hmm. Did you find that the community there was conservation-minded? I know that there are a lot of agricultural mm-hmm. operations and farms and fields around you. So I think in its own right, you know, there mm-hmm. needs to be some sort of caring for the land, whether it's an outspoken advocacy stance or not. Mm-hmm. Um, was your community in the Midwest... Mm-hmm. more openly conservation-minded, or was it kind of a passive way, like, well, we're a farming community, so of course we needed to work the land and take care of it? Yeah. Um, well, that's a really good question. I don't know that I've ever really thought about how caring the community that I grew up in was. Um, but, you know, the town that I grew up in had really great parks, and I feel like... Um, There was a sense, I think people, I think supplies all over the place, that people 
um, care about what they can see. People care about and will take care of things that they connect to. Um, so obviously, like, even if I went home today and I was like, you should love the ocean because it gives you the oxygen you breathe and it does all these other things. It regulates our climate, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. They'd be like, that's cool. I can't see the ocean. It feels disconnected from me. But if I said, um, you know, what if we clear cut this park that, you know, many kids grew up playing in and running around in to make... I don't know, some subdivision or something like that, people would totally care about that. And so I think that my community does care about the things that they connect to. Mm -hmm. um, it's always harder, and that's the case for conservation everywhere, yeah. to get people to connect with things that they don't see every day because it is still important to them in some way, even if they can't see it or don't feel the everyday benefit from it. Um, but yeah, I would say even though, um, you know, when a lot of us think of agriculture, we think of like big farms, right? Um, I grew up in an area where there are a lot of small farms. My uncle is still to this day a farmer. He, um, you know, raises um, sheep and corn and grows corn and soybeans on a couple of different farms. And he's always, um, you know, had a physical connection to the land and cares for it and the animals. And so maybe in a way too, I'm a little inspired by, by that. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to look at the experience that you had growing up versus my experience with always being on the coast mm -hmm. where I think in those communities, they're so intertwined with their connection to the water mm -hmm. that, um, of course there are always challenges when you're trying to protect the coastline, yeah. um, relating to different dynamics and how people use it. But I think that is like a thing that's been ingrained in the communities mm -hmm. that I grew up in is of course the ocean is important. We all rely on it. We make our money, you know, from it and mm -hmm. we enjoy recreating on it but then on the flip side you know the thinking about where our, our the majority of our food comes from mm -hmm. and like the livestock and everything that happens in like the heartlands of the country mm -hmm. I think it's it's like almost flipped with the reversal of well that's out of sight out of mind so if it comes to really caring for you know voting for things that relate to our farmers well-being yeah. stuff like that um but I think you're exactly right. I think that's the the core of being a successful advocate and successful in the line of work that we are in is figuring out that conundrum of how to connect people to things that they don't necessarily see or interact with mm -hmm. every day. Um, so staying in the same vein of, of talking about some of the places that we've lived, um, I know that you obviously had to leave since we're sitting in Boston now. <laughs> yeah. Where did you go after you, you oh, left the Midwest? Where haven't I gone? <laughs> um, so I, um, I left Illinois when I was 18. I was lucky enough to get um, a scholarship to the University of South Carolina. Um, and of course, I was the first person in my family to not go to the University of Illinois <laughs> or Illinois State. And so again, I got a lot of side eye for that. Um, They're like, can't you study fish 
here and I was like no offense but I don't really want to study the like freshwater fish I want to study saltwater fish every family needs a person that mixes it up (laughs) yeah I'm definitely that person somehow um for so many reasons um so I went to the University of South Carolina where I got my bachelor's in marine science um, and got a lot of really incredible opportunities there. Also realized how hard marine science is um, and how awful I was at, um, not awful at science, but uninterested <laughs> in like pursuing the science side of things. Uh-huh. I was more about shaping the management side of things. Um, and so then I somehow ended up in law school <laughs> in Vermont. And then after law school, I moved to Oregon where I lived for quite a long time where I met my husband, started my family, and really started my career as um, for a while an ocean attorney and then sort of transitioned more into policy and then ended up here in um, Boston. So I've kind of lived almost everywhere except the southwest i'm the same way i actually recently just took my first trip down to uh the southwest which you know arguably maybe august isn't the time that everybody enjoys going there but i had a lovely time um and i i also feel like i have also lived everywhere but the southwest so maybe i should actually have an episode that's focused on southwestern conservation issues because i think that would be really fascinating water. yes water, oh my gosh water, water, water scarcity the colorado river um but yeah so all of this talk about places where we've lived mm-hmm. kind of got me thinking about the importance of community and i think both meaning our own support systems mm-hmm. because i think many of us you know no one really gets anywhere without the support of somebody 100%, else yeah um and then also thinking about the importance of really immersing yourself in the community in which you're in mm-hmm. and whether that changes because you move, um, but really trying to connect to that community and do what you can to improve mm-hmm. it. Um, how do you think we as individuals can positively impact our communities? And you can answer that in a way that is both either your personal community, your mm-hmm. support system of humans around you, or, you know the the physical community that you live in yeah oh that's such a good question I feel like I struggle with that because um you know when when I lived in Oregon I felt really connected to my community and I think in large part that's because Portland Oregon is a really community-driven town um and I made a lot of really incredible connections there, both professionally as um, an ocean advocate and then in my personal life. And I feel like um, because I'm lucky enough to have a job, I work in a field that I love and I'm very passionate about, those two things are never separate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, impacting my community there probably meant doing a lot of environmentally related things. Although, you know, Portland is so environmentally conscious anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I really made a difference. <laughs> um, but so those things always sort of bled together. Um, and then I had my first kid (laughs) (laughs) 
And that, and and then we moved to Boston um, when my son was two and a half. And then I had my second child, um, you know, a couple years later, or four and a half years later, but a couple years after we moved to Boston. And um, it is really, it's a lot harder. So it, I find my ability to um, impact my community becomes a lot more driven around my family mm-hmm. as opposed to sort of personally my love around the environment and then the work we do as advocates. Um, it's like when I'm trying to make my community better, it's about my neighborhood in mm-hmm. Jamaica Plain, or it's about my son's school, um, and it's or it's about um, you know the Boston public school system, which needs <laughs> a lot of advocacy and um, community building, um, and so it's shifted. But I think, I think again, it goes back to it's maybe like a long way to answer your question, saying. I think that just like we connect with nature where we are, um, we connect with our community um, where we are. And so that has changed for me over time. And Mm -hmm. I think for everybody that kind of changes over time. But it's really important because if I didn't have a community here in Boston of other, let's say, families going through similar things... um, it would be a lot harder. And so I think that the more networks you create for yourself, um, the better you are and the easier it is to integrate into mm-hmm. and make your community better. Mm-hmm. And then you just get thrown into things, I think, which then goes to my, you know, I do a lot around my son's school because it's a huge part of my life and, so I'm inspired or maybe not even inspired, but driven to try and make things or support things because it's a huge part of my life. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I, I kind of want to continue on this path a little bit more and thinking about, you know, here we are sitting in Boston mm-hmm. um, and I'm not sure if you ever really envisioned yourself living here, <laughs> no. but thinking about how... You know, you've moved from one community to the next, and now um, we're here, and you're raising this really beautiful family, um, two lovely children, fantastic husband, Um, and I think that you would be the perfect person to share a little bit more about your experience, if you're comfortable with it, Mm -hmm. about being a working mother. Mm. Um, I know that the work that we do can be pretty demanding anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, It can be pretty stressful. But in the same, um, you know, that at the same time, so can motherhood. Yeah. So how do you find balance? Is that a thing that you even can find with young kids <laughs> in a crazy job? Um, and just for <laughs> listeners, too, our, our work schedule requires us to travel quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is that like for you? trying to find balance in a world of family and career. Balance is bullshit. (laughs) I will try and make that 
my only swear of the, oh, you can swear as much as you'd like of the podcast but um it is so epically hard to find balance um as a working parent um and I think society has come a long way in shifting the responsibilities more equally toward if you are a, a two-parent home um, among parents, um, but it is still hard, and it is not always equal. So there are many times where I bear the brunt of family responsibilities, um, and then there are many times, especially like you said, we travel a lot. I'd say over the course of a year, at least once a month we're traveling, that then my partner, he picks up, right, the lion's share of the family responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think balance is a myth. Who is also fully em- full-time Who's also, employed. Right, yeah, yeah, he has his own outside of the house um, job and career and so it's a, it's a, it's, we're always, I, I have given up trying to find balance because I've just recognized that there are going to be times where I am going to be doing more. Mm-hmm. And then there are going, there are just going to be times where he is doing more. And so long as you don't get to a place where one of you is always doing all of it, I think it's doable, but it is really hard. Um, <sighs> Being a working parent um, is, you know, the majority of us out there, regardless of what our jobs are, um, and that is hard. I mean, serious props to the parents out there that don't have um, a partner that they can do that splitting or, you know, sharing of the burden with, Um I for sure my job would be I would be unable to do it if I if I didn't have um, a partner that I like I have my husband um, and it is I always feel guilty yeah and I work really hard to try and sort of tamp that down and recognizing that I am doing the best that I can my children are incredibly loved. They are spoiled by grandparents. Mm-hmm. They are. They have a lot of privilege, um, but there is still a part of me that feels guilty for going to work in the morning. And um, you know, not so much my son, who is now school age, so he has to go to school whether he likes it or not. But my daughter is still um, preschool age, right? So she doesn't have to be at school. The state doesn't demand it yet. Yeah. Um, and so there are lots of days where I feel guilty or when we travel, I feel guilty, um, that I'm leaving them. And then there are some days that I am with them and I feel guilty for maybe not getting something done that I really wanted to at work. Mm -hmm. So there are some days I go home and I either have, I either feel guilty for not being a good enough parent or fear or I feel guilty for not being a good enough boss or employee or leader. 
Um, and that is, you can't live life. It's like, what a dilemma. Way. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and the I, guilt is there no the, matter what, the, which also is a fitting place to be in Boston and talking about that because I feel like, I mean, not to say either of us are necessarily religious or to get into that, mm-hmm. but the whole Catholic, <laughs> the shroud of Catholic guilt <laughs> that is just over Boston all the time. Uh, um, yeah. Maybe my husband feels the Catholic yeah. guilt. I am not, I am not so burdened by Catholic guilt. Yeah. It's mom guilt. I I can only imagine how difficult that is. I mean, sitting here and and from my standpoint, I have no children. But, um, you know, whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed, sometimes I think about, Mm -hmm. like, what would Sarah do? Or, you know, what would (laughs) one of our other colleagues who also has uh, three young children, and I think she's, what, pursuing a PhD at the same time and working full time. I think about how much you can really put on your plate and still, mm-hmm. you know, maintain, thrive, and somehow keep your sanity. Um, you guys are an absolute inspiration to me. I know that you may make jokes about oh your own gosh. sanity and keeping it together, mm-hmm. but um, I think that you two are people that I look up to every single day um, for everything that you do, not only for Conservation World, but for your mm. families and the communities around you. You're very impressive People. You're very sweet. <laughs> You're very, very kind. <laughs> um, so, you know, speaking of Boston, now we've brought it up a yeah. few times. Yes, we live in an urban area, but mm-hmm. there are plenty of opportunities to get out and enjoy the outdoors mm-hmm. um, right here in the city. Yeah. So I'm interested in learning a little bit more about mm-hmm. what are some of your favorite ways to do that around here. Oh, my gosh. That's a... Mm. So, you know, a lot of my time, oh my gosh, the things I used to do before kids, like the things that we would, you know, living in Oregon, you are an hour plus from Mount Hood, you're an hour plus from the coast, and we would just go and do those things, and I think with kids, um... It's a little bit better now that our kids are getting older, right? My youngest is three and a half, and it's easier to get out with them. But there are some days where just getting out of the house on a weekend is, like, a freaking like, clap for yourself, Sarah. <laughs> Good job. You got the them The kids clothed. are up. They're fed. They're wearing fed. clothes. You have left the house. Congratulations. <laughs> Um, but we, I really like to explore our neighborhood. So my husband just finally got a bike and we got a carrier attached to the back of my bike for our three and a half year old. And this past weekend, we just went out and explored, uh, playgrounds. So we just went out to, we got outside, we got into natural places. Um, and I think that's really cool to just explore different neighborhoods that you live in. Um, so that was really fun. And yes, it is possible to bike in Boston without getting hit by a crazy <gasps> Massachusetts driver. <laughs> um, but it is, I am much more nervous biking around Boston yeah. than I ever was in Portland or Vermont because the roads were like meant for carriages, horses and carriages. Yeah. And they now don't we make have sense cars. for cars. They don't make sense it's, for pedestrians. It's no wonder that everybody's angry all the time. Yeah. Yeah, um, and it's not necessarily that we're bad drivers here. It's just the road well, system isn't set up 
I'm not saying there aren't bad drivers here. I'm just saying it's not in our favor the way that our our road structure Fair. is as it exists yeah. now. And you know, I I think I asked this question too because I I, I really enjoy um, following along with and hearing about your adventures with mm-hmm. your kids mm-hmm. because you guys do a really good job of getting outside and, and, and mm-hmm. enjoying the outdoors and giving your kids that outdoor experience, even if you mm-hmm. can't pack up the car and go on vacations mm-hmm. outside of the city, you guys are always walking around, you're biking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can see that that sense of a love for the natural world is already yeah. instilled in your kids just through having those experiences, which I think is really fun to see as they yeah. grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, for anybody that's that's biking around Boston or walking around Boston, um, you know, be careful. The city is is working on developing a new bike lane system. I know in my neighborhood they're putting bike lanes in left and right. Um, but as somebody who has personally been hit by a car, oh, I will just put a word of caution out there yeah. that, you know, just be careful in certain cities. So, like, for me, I would love to bike around Boston, but I just haven't gotten past yeah. that experience yet of how close you really are mm-hmm. to the street and not fully trusting the people that are behind the wheel um, to be paying attention all the time. Um, so I guess for we're getting off of the ocean issues for <laughs> another very important PSA yeah. for both drivers and cyclists that, you know, if you're driving, try to really make sure you're taking extra precautions to make sure you're mm-hmm. aware of your surroundings. But then as people that, you know, we highly encourage you to get out and enjoy urban areas and cities, um, always be your number one advocate and be sure to look mm-hmm. all in all directions mm-hmm. um, to make sure that you and your children and your pets are as safe as possible. Um so with that, we'll transition away. I mean, you guys have just heard a little bit about how amazing Sarah is just as a human being and how interesting her life path has been. Um, but I think it's really important for us to talk about our our work and your career mm-hmm. um, because you're so inspirational in that sense as well. It also sounds like, so with if, I'm, if the microphone is picking this up with the service <laughs> elevator... Um, it's almost like we have a whale song in the back, mm. so we can think of it as in that positive way. Pretend as, we're out yeah. on a boat <laughs> yeah. in Massachusetts Bay. We're listening to whales talking to each other. Yeah, we're out on a whale watch. This interview is <laughs> happening under the sea um, with some local resident right whales. Um, but talk to me a little bit more about your early career so thinking about what the process was like for you getting your foot in the door of the conservation world and I bring this up because I think something that we hear from a lot of people including my own experience Mm -hmm. is that a lot of people have had to take a series of unpaid internships or they've had to work for really small stipends um, and sort of really grinding it out until you find a position of more permanence Mm -hmm. somewhere. Um, Is that relatable to your path or did your path sort of lead you in a different route? Yeah. Um, So it definitely, it can definitely pull snippets from that. Um, So I don't know how far down the path we want to get into law school as a life choice. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) 
I certainly wouldn't take back law school because then the path of my life would be incredibly different. Who knows if I would have ended up in Oregon and met my husband and, you know, had the experiences I've had. Um, I, but I do think that law school, um, the way, and I, I think I talk about this, I'm going to talk about this a little bit is because it has interesting connections into how I got into the ocean conservation field as a lawyer. So, um, in law school, you, uh, you know, take all of these classes for three years and it's exhausting, quite frankly. And luckily at my law school, and I think law schools are getting better about this now, but um, so much of it is in the classroom, right? Where professors are throwing questions at you and you're supposed to answer it. And, um, but what does that do? Like, does that really turn you into a good lawyer? Does Mm -hmm. that just turn you into a good thinker about legal concepts? And then all of a sudden you get out of law school and what experiences have you had? And I would argue that um, um, even college and even high school, I just think there should be more experiential learning in all levels of um, career development. Mm -hmm. Because I think it helps you recognize what you might really want to do or help you recognize what hell no, I don't want to do this thing. Mm-hmm. This is totally not what I thought it was going to be. Um, and so I was lucky enough that the law school I went to, Vermont Law School, um, offered what they call a semester in practice. And so I got to go to Oregon and practice with an attorney who at the time was working um, in ocean conservation and fisheries management. And so I had that semester with her um, to understand what it might mean to be an attorney outside of sitting in a classroom and talking about torts and mm-hmm. evidence and mm-hmm. personal jurisdiction <laughs> and stuff like that. Oh, um, excuse me, I just went to sleep. Yeah, yeah right? <laughs> exactly. And so did I. And um, so it was great. And, um, and so that was great, right? So I didn't get paid for that, but I got course credit for that. So I think that that is something that you can do... Um, but these unpaid internships are so hard. And then who are those people? So, mm-hmm. sorry, let me back up. So after that, um, I then got to go to D.C. and work for an ocean conservation group to sort of figure out, is D.C. kind of where I want to end up and what might that look like? And I did get a stipend. So I think that's really great. But for organizations who, you know, look, the conservation field pays okay, but it doesn't pay amazing. Right. Um, and so there are sacrifices to getting in sort of the nonprofit side of conservation. Um, and when you have unpaid internships, um, and I understand that not every organization can offer it, but like, aren't you reducing the pool of people who can apply for that? Mm-hmm. You're basically saying you need to be able to have your own money. Or have a support system behind you that will yep. pay for you to... To not work for three months. Exactly. Right? And there are a number of groups that we work with that have unpaid internships. And it's hard enough for people to survive in Boston with yeah. a well-paying job. Right. So I think about even in our own pool, in our own community let alone the greater, you know, scheme of everywhere in mm-hmm. the country, when you get into these large urban areas, which is where a lot of the jobs are, yep. 
it's hard enough to survive when you're making a full-time salary and so you're asking yeah. somebody to move into the city somehow on a stipend for an opportunity yeah and on a stipend or unpaid and mm-hmm. so when you think about what kind of pool are you going to get of applicants there and who yeah. are you excluding by doing that you're excluding a lot of people mm-hmm. a lot of people I mean there are a lot of really um, a lot of really great thoughtful smart people who are talking about that um, um, and I think that you know when we offer an internship that that's something that we need to be able to do to get an intern is to have yes. money um, which is probably why we don't have one right now. But I think <laughs> why we in, keep talking about it, we right. haven't hired one yet. <laughs> but I think it, I think it's really important for any community, but especially the conservation community, to be able to um, you know offer funds because I I wouldn't have been able to go to DC for that summer if I had not had some sort of stipend and then of course I you know used also some of the money that I was getting for my legal education which I'm still paying back and will forever and ever and time immemorial whatever um so what was the question did I answer that I feel well, like I've no I mean I think it, like it's less so much about the question more so <laughs> where we're gonna go with the conversation and I really like yeah. where we are right now and and the point that you made about experiential learning being so valuable mm-hmm. in in all levels of education. I think that really spoke to me because per, on a personal level, that's how I learn. And I know that there are so many people out there that are more hands-on, experience-focused people. Mm-hmm. I mean, my entire life, you can see it with the classes I did well in, the classes I didn't, or even major life lessons that I've learned outside of a classic education institution where it's, I try things, I go do things, I learn, I say, oh, I'm not interested mm-hmm. in that, I, you know, maybe I want to go over this way and try something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a big supporter of people getting out there and experiencing life and learning your own lessons from it. And I think the only reason why I got my master's and went to the grad program that I did, and even I think got into the program that I did, mm-hmm. is because they are so focused on experiential learning so I, for listeners, I went to Virginia Tech. They're, it's their executive master's in natural resources program, but their structure is different than any that I've seen before. And I wouldn't be surprised if more programs are moving in this direction now. But they teach you whatever the lesson is, um, and then you act in consultancy teams, and you work with real groups, real cities, real municipalities um, that have problems relating to what you're learning about. And then you work with them to come up with a solution and that sort of solidifies the message and the lesson that they were teaching versus the classic here's a book here's a test which I understand works for some people but I think that it's really important (laughs) to be in in the in the vein of being more inclusive of all different kinds of people in different minds um, I think that's an important direction for schools Mm -hmm. to be going in is is putting the lessons that they're teaching into practical use in demonstrating why it matters for you to know this information and retain it yeah yeah um so before we move away from the education side of things because I know we could talk about this like all day we could um do you 
have any insight that you would like to share with prospective law students? What do you think people should know or consider about law school? Oh my God, <laughs> Jenna. I really don't know that we want to open this can of worms. <laughs> well, we just opened it. <laughs> so <laughs> many. I have so many conflicting thoughts about law school. I feel like I need a bottle of rosé sitting next to me. I don't understand why we're not drinking right now. Maybe because it's it's in the afternoon. Because <laughs> we're know, at five work. Five o'clock somewhere. We're, yeah. <laughs> we're at work. <laughs> Uh, it is five o'clock somewhere. Um, not here though. Not here, sadly. <laughs> so again, I reiterate that I wouldn't change my own life story, um, my choice to go to law school because it would change the rest of my life, right? It's like, um, but if I knew now, if I knew then what I know now, I, without you know actually changing the outcome of where I've gotten to. I don't know that I would have gone to law school. I think law school is a really big commitment. Um, It is three incredibly intense years um, with a bunch of overachievers, right? I mean, those are the people who apply to law school. But not everybody, when you get there, can be an overachiever, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think that that... um, For me, right, I was not in the top of my class. Um, I wondered at the first year, because I went to law school, right, so I grew up loving the ocean. I always knew I wanted to be an ocean advocate. And at the end, closer towards the end of college, I had a mentor who was like, you love policy, you love management, you should go to law school. You should really go to law school, become an ocean attorney. And I was like, that sounds awesome. I'm totally (laughs) going to do that. And then I went in, like, you know, rose-colored glasses and naive. Threw into the pit of the uh, overachievers trying yeah. to be the overachievious. Right, <laughs> yes. I was not the overachievious. I promise you that. And um, that was really hard to come to grips with and to ask my brain to retrain itself and how it thought from sort of the science policy into the, like, the sort of legal thinking that they want you to do. And I struggled with that. I had a horrible first year. I hated it. I was like, what have I done? Why did I, I should just leave law school? And then I somehow talked myself into going back for a second year. And um, I think in part that was because the law school I went to has this summer program, which basically saved my life. Um, my, not my physical life, but like saved my, what felt like a really bad choice, life choice, (laughs) going to law school, jumping into, you know, coming out of law school in debt up to a hundred thousand dollars and thinking about how do I have a nonprofit career with all of that debt. Mm -hmm. Um, and the summer classes were amazing, right? So practitioners came in and taught all of these environmental courses. I took a class called Fisheries in the Ocean. Mm-hmm. I took a class called, you know, Environmental Law, Ocean and Coastal Conservation, and it was people. It was law- They were lawyers out in the field doing the work, working for nonprofits and federal agencies, state agencies, telling you that you could do this. Here's the kind of law you could practice when you get out of law school. And so that helped me then get through the second semester, the second first semester of my second year, and then I went off and did that semester in practice, which then further made me think, oh, okay, okay, I can do this. This is I know what I'm I I know where I'm going with this. 
and they all of those experiences sort of helped me. But I think when I think you really need to think about what is your ultimate goal? Do you really want to be a lawyer? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're getting into say ocean and coastal law or even just environmental law generally, do you want to practice? Do you want to work for an NRDC, an Earth Justice? Um, do you want to um, work for the government, or do you, or do you really want that policy? Do you mm-hmm. want to be a policy person, because you can get that policy piece without spending a <laughs> hundred plus thousand dollars and going to law school and yeah. then having to sit for bar exams. So I guess I just urge people thinking about going to law school to really think about what your ultimate goal is, because if you do think you really want to practice. By all means, go to law school. Law school is a great place to become a lawyer, so I hear. Um, (laughs) But if you're not sure, right, if you just want, if you really love the policy, I urge you to look at the incredible master's programs around the country where you can learn about the law but not go to law school. So Mm -hmm. just, I think if someone had said that to me, law school might be a really great place for you, Sarah, but you know, look at all of your options and see um, see if going to law school is, is really right for you. Do you really want to be a lawyer or do you just want to help protect the ocean? Because there are multiple ways to do that and going to law school is is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I did, I did end up coming out of law school being very thankful that I had done it. I don't want to disparage law schools generally I just personally had a really hard time the first half of law school um and feel like if I'd if I'd had time and if I'd had someone telling me be really clear about your goal because law school is not easy and it's not fast right it's three years of course you know people listening who have their PhD are like, please, honey, (laughs) you don't know anything. (laughs) Yeah. Well, in hindsight, when you look back on time, it flies, but when you're in it, it seems to go pretty slow. Yeah. Um, but (laughs) yeah. And I think, you know, there, there's law school, but then there, there's people like me who have been able to somehow wiggle my way into the Mm -hmm. policy world without Mm -hmm. a law degree. Um, I'm someone that just loves to speak and communicate and I've talked my way into the policy world. But that's it. You don't have to be a lawyer to be in the policy world. Yeah. There's places where you can, the lawyers are very important in the policy world. We need them, but there's space for other people. So much space for different backgrounds that are not legal. Yes. For sure. And I really love the idea of um, any sort of major in college mm-hmm. or master's or higher education program. Having their students go through a course that explains to them what they can do with that degree. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of people that are lost out there. I did my entire mm-hmm. undergraduate career as a lost person that just settled on a, on a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been fortunate that it's been, it's been a great situation for me, but there are a lot of people who go are in debt now and don't even use their degree that I think really would have benefited mm-hmm. from a, a, a kind of a frank discussion, to be honest about, is yeah. this right for you? Is college even right for you? Mm-hmm. And then what can you do with this, this degree mm-hmm. and to, to see if it's the right fit? Yeah. Um, but all that to say, here we are in the ocean policy world. Yes. Working together, doing great we work. We are. Mm-hmm. Can you, because we're focusing on you, I know that I can also <laughs> do this, but I would like to hear from you. 
Can you describe what we do, um, including some of the key issues that we are focused on right now? Yeah, I really hope that I can answer this correctly, <laughs> because if not, <laughs> I should really get a new job. We'll hide it from all of our coworkers. Um, yes. So, um, well, how about I start with um, sort of one important piece of our work? Sure. So, um, Jenna and I run the Healthy Oceans Coalition, along with our colleague and friend, Jennifer Felt, at the Conservation Law Foundation. Who is the other person I was talking about when I was thinking about how mothers inspire me. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) These two are, like, super women. A hundred percent. She inspires me, too. Um, and... So the HOC, for short, is a network of over 100-plus nonprofits, individuals, concerned citizens, ocean users around the country. Um, And what we really try and do is support strong ocean and coastal policies um, at the federal level. And we try and engage those groups um, who are working in their bay, their estuary, their watershed, to pay attention and engage in advocacy at the federal government level um, and help them find the value in doing that, right? So they may be really focused on one particular bay, but that bay has some sort of um, connection into what the federal government is or is not doing to help protect that bay, the health of that bay. So we try and help connect them into how they can most easily advocate for themselves. And then we also um, we also choose some sort of hot button, big picture federal issues. And for the last year or two, we've really been focused on the shift in how the federal government views federal ocean policy, um, how it has shifted federal ocean policy in a very different way um, from sort of a balance between conservation and use um, skewed much more heavily towards use and extraction over conservation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we do that through looking at um, how the government is regulating offshore oil and gas. We look at how... The government is looking at rollbacks to our national marine, our marine national monuments and potentially marine sanctuaries. Um, we look at that from the level of fisheries conservation and management. Um, so those are some of the sort of big picture issues that we think advocates at even the local and regional level who may be very focused on a place or their community can connect into those issues that really do have an impact on the work that they do. Yeah, and I, I think that's a fantastic summary of what we do. I mean, we are, I feel like we wear so many different hats yeah. in our roles, yeah. especially being we're a very lean team. Um, <laughs> you know, there are three of us that run this thing, and mm-hmm. we've got, as Sarah said, more than 100 different groups that we work with. So every day is something different. And, you know, I think Sarah has probably heard me say this, Countless times, um, where I think overall with the Healthy Oceans Coalition, we really just have noticed uh, the gap of the people between the people making the rules up in Capitol Hill and the people that are impacted by them. Mm-hmm. And 
the people that are being impacted by the rules need their voices to be heard so that they are reflected in the legislation that's being passed and in the budget in in any of the other decision making processes mm-hmm. and it's not always been it's really not been easy over you know historically for people just to plug in and connect with their member of congress so we really try to serve as that conduit and that connector between folks on the ground that want to help impact and inform and influence the decision making happening at that level um, and the folks that are making the decisions so it's really about empowering folks on a grassroots level. I also think that those voices are the ones from my experience now of going into members of Congress's offices. Um, It's not necessarily me that they want to hear from. I mean, of course, they will listen, take our meetings, but the people that have the most impact are the ones that can tell the stories about how those, those laws and legislations and budgets are impacting their lives directly. So Mm -hmm. it's sort of our job to, make sure that those people are going in Mm -hmm. and able to have that face-to-face discussion with the member of Congress and or their staff. Um, So it's hard work, but it's really rewarding work in its own right. Yeah, and it's very nationally focused, right? So we have groups all around the country. And then another component um, that is tangential to the HOC's work is our work specifically in the Mid-Atlantic around that piece that I talked about um, earlier of federal ocean policy and how it has changed in this administration, federal administration, um, to the last one. And part of that is how federal agencies view working with their counterparts at the state level and at the federally recognized tribe level. Um, And so we do um, a lot of work um, with our other Literal Society team member, Helen, on um, how does the Mid-Atlantic region, which spans from New York through Virginia, how how do they work together through this concept of ocean planning, where if you plan out your vision and your goals for how you want to see that ocean space look like in, you know, 10, 20 years, you can make better decisions. The federal agencies can make better decisions. The states can be more informed and have a larger voice to the federal government. And the tribal nations, um, you know, had a seat as co-managers at that table. And unfortunately, that table doesn't exist anymore. The Trump administration decided it didn't need it and it was duplicable, which I will argue until I am blue in the face (laughs) is not the case. Um... But that's a really important piece of the literal society's work that you and I and Helen do, um, advocating for that to still be something that the states are doing, the feds are doing, especially with, you know, offshore wind and sand mining and fishing and commercial fishing, recreational fishing, shipping. There's so many things we do in the ocean that standing on the beach we don't always see that... Um, if these entities that have stewardship responsibility over these resources for us, right, for citizens, um, that if they're not doing the right thing, if they're not talking to each other, it just ends up with more conflict, more litigation, right? There's those pesky lawyers again. Um, (laughs) And more bad decisions. And then at the end of the day, the health of the ocean and the coastal communities are the ones that suffer by those... Yeah, decisions. right. And so, you know, overall, it, a, a huge central focus of ours is smart 
collaborative, well-informed ocean planning and decisions being made about the ocean. Yeah. That's what we advocate for. That's pretty much why we exist. Um, Because the ocean's a busy place and it's only getting busier and it is really complex and complicated because it's something that we're, you know, we're terrestrial beings. It's hard for us to see what's going on out there. Um, So it takes people like us and the community of other amazing minds and advocates Mm -hmm. that we work with to be watchdogs Mm -hmm. over um, how we're using the ocean to make sure that we can continue doing so into the future. Um, And... So, you know, operating in this space is very political, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. can be really tense at times Mm -hmm. um, and really challenging. So I'm wondering, what is it that keeps you motivated and inspired and Mm -hmm. interested in your work? Um, Oh, Jenna, that's such a great question. Um, some Thanks. days. <laughs> See that as my role as a podcast host to at right? least, at the very ask least, good ask questions. good questions. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, to be honest, I am not always inspired and motivated to keep doing the work. Um, and that is... That is a very privileged statement. To Wouldn't make. that be funny if this is how you quit? <laughs> <laughs> and then I literally <laughs> mic drop. I'm literally going to drop this mic. And uh, I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think what I'm trying to do is not quit, but like, actually. <laughs> but like, actually, like, recognize that, you know, this work is not always easy. Mm-hmm. It can be thankless. Um, people, there are so many people in this country that are just freaking trying to like get from one paycheck to another, mm-hmm. um, to like get their family ahead, to take care, get the bills paid, keep the lights on, you know, get a job that, you know, saving the ocean is like. A little fluffy. It's, I mean, it's so important. Like, right. I, it's, you know, it's like, I don't want to put that yeah. on the back burner. Like, right. saving the ocean is is mm-hmm. of the utmost importance for human yeah. survival. But in terms of everyday society and, like, the mm-hmm. day-to-day, mm-hmm. I hear you. Yeah. Um, but I think that, again, there are some really incredibly smart capable, amazing people out there who are thinking about the intersection of saving the ocean to environmental justice to community justice issues um, because we don't operate in a vacuum, right? Mm -hmm. And those everyday struggles are going to be exacerbated by climate change. And saving the ocean (laughs) is part of our moral imperative to help deal with climate change, right? Mm -hmm. So it's all intertwined. It really is. But there are some days it does feel like people look at me and they're like, that's really cool. Thanks for doing that. Um, But I'm going to be over here, like, you know, working my job and taking care of my kids and trying to use plastic straws less. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at the end of the day, what can I really do? And so some days this job isn't inspiring, um, but, um, I think what I was trying to say was, 
even in even through the days where it feels like a, a a slog, right? Like it's just getting through this day. How much worse can the decisions coming out of the federal administration get? Um, is finding community around you that you can be inspired by. Yeah. So I'm not inspired by the idea of saving the ocean. I love the ocean. It's I am trying to do the best I can to save it for my kids and my grandkids and generations beyond us. Um, but I'm not super inspired by that. I'm actually inspired by the people that are around me who are also trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so I am always most inspired in this job um, when like you and Helen and I come out of a planning session and we're all ramped up about the cool things we're going to do. And I feed off of your guys's positivity and that keeps me inspired and wanting to do the work because I'm surrounded by incredibly awesome, capable people. And then, um, when we do those trainings mm -hmm. in this political environment where it feels like every other day, there's something that makes me want to bang my head against a brick wall <laughs> because that would be a preferable feeling to reading the news. Um, doing a training where you get into a room for two days with people who are just trying to save their coastal community, their bay, their watershed, whatever. And you get a chance to interact with them and talk about their lives and what they're doing and give them even just a little bit extra support to do that. Mm -hmm. That is what keeps me going. Yeah. That is what keeps me I inspired. I agree. And just a little background information. These trainings that we're talking about are through the Healthy Oceans Coalition. We host them twice a year. Um, they move around the country and we just spend two days walking through essentially everything you need to know to get that solid foundation to be an ocean advocate, but they're all transferable skills. I mean, like you can leave there and use those advocacy skills for any of the issues that you care about. Um, but that I think is where I get a lot of my inspiration in this world in to keep pushing forward in the conservation world is the people that you meet in those trainings are people that really just want to be involved and they want to be informed and they want to make a difference, but maybe they don't know how, or maybe they want to brush up on their skills, or maybe they're an expert and they want to just expand their network um, or you know learn new ways to be even stronger. And then keeping the relationships with them, so this even circles all the way back, like full circle to the community thing, mm -hmm. is we're building community in this conservation space, in this advocacy space, um, and then seeing the growth of someone that comes into our trainings and then, you know, a year later, six months later, a mm -hmm. year later, seeing them realizing their own power. And it's not only just because of what we're doing. Like, oh, I want to sure. be clear. It's like yeah, on yeah. the individual <laughs> to be like a total kick-ass rock star right. on their own and, and take their their fate and their future into their own hands, but to come out and see if we can help them in any way grow. Mm -hmm. Like that is the most re rewarding thing for me just mm -hmm. to go into meetings with our members of Congress with yeah. these people that maybe came into our training and were a little timid. And now they're this like outspoken, yeah. total like kick-ass yeah. um, person that's moving and shaking. And, yeah. and Right. Cause these people, these advocates are doing such amazing work, mm -hmm. right, in their community. And it's amazing just to spend two days with them talking about the work that they're doing mm -hmm. and 
you know, bringing people in who are subject matter experts or experts in talking to decision makers or experts in, you know, communicating with the press and your piece on social media and just watching them talk about, you know, what's important to them and what they're doing and then utilizing that and growing that through the training. I mean, we're just giving them the opportunity to... Um, take what they're the amazingness of what they're already doing and just move it forward a little bit um, where they might not have the ability to do that because again right nonprofits are um, conservation nonprofits the conservation community is underfunded to begin with right and counterpart to like the lands conservation community um, gets a much larger share and I can't rattle the numbers off mm-hmm. the top of my head um, and so being able to just provide that resource and people who are the experts and come in and help train them is is just really cool mm-hmm. so I love getting to meet people who are doing badass stuff yeah um, and just spend time with them and it makes it feel like you know, we're not the only ones out here trying to to save the ocean. You yeah. Know? Which, I mean, obviously we couldn't do that on our own anyway. We're not <laughs> trying to. But just making more connections and networks into community yes. around the country. So another so cool. cool aspect of our job is that it positions us in a space to meet with our members of Congress and, and their staff. Mm-hmm. Um, which is an experience that I would like for more people to have. Yeah. And I think we're working to help people have those experiences. Um, but I feel like it also isn't a super common experience for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I think it would be interesting to have you sort of describe what the process of meeting with your member of Congress Mm -hmm. is like um, and share a little bit of your expertise about what people should know about those meetings or, or before going into those meetings Mm -hmm. if they're interested in setting one up. Yeah. So I would love for people to just think about their member of Congress as just another person. Yes. Right. I think we get so, or I mean, so I grew up in a very, unpolitical family, non-political family. Um, it was not a big thing. Um, you know, my parents weren't really into politics that I think who it didn't really transfer to me how, um, how politics really matter in everyday life until I went to college. Um, and that's not a hit on my parents at all by any means. Um, Um, But it might be in part because the laws work in their favor, right? So, you know, I am a white woman, grew up in a conservative, you know, um, lovely small town in Illinois. Um, But politics never felt like it was something that affected my day to day, Mm -hmm. right? That's how, that's just how I grew up. It wasn't a big thing in my family. And now, as a 40-year-old woman, I see why that probably was the case, right? And how important it actually is to be connected into the politics around you. Because tons of the things that um, we take for granted happen because there is a law regulation or there isn't a law regulation, right? And so if we just think about um, 
our members of Congress as real people and their staff as real people. Um, I think it's a lot easier because I think I remember some, I can't even remember when it was a long time ago, obviously now going into my first meeting and I thought I was going to vomit. <laughs> I was so nervous. Yeah. I was like, what if the staff thinks I'm an idiot? What if the member comes in and I can't remember my yeah. name? Yeah. You know, like I was so nervous. And I, I don't think you can actually get rid of those nerves because doing something you, you, you've you never done before always yeah. gives you a little bit of nervousness. Yeah. Um, unless you are the most confident person in the entire world, I've yet to meet that person. Um, and so, but I think if you just take the anxiety of them being... Um, it's like Smarter. the title or the yeah. stature of it all, especially exactly. if you're on the hill, like if yep. it's the whole production. Because that is overwhelming. Being up there and going through security, and sometimes there are big media events happening, mm-hmm. and especially right now, there's like always cameras there. Always something. Um, but It's true. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Is It's just a conversation. Yep. And they work for you, so mm-hmm. you have every right to yeah. request a meeting with them right. and go in, and it's their job to listen to right. you. Um, and, and nine times out of ten, yes. you know more about yes. the the issue you are going in about than they yes, do. Yes, absolutely. Nine times out yeah. of ten. You made me think that I should have some like an episode, <clears throat> like a short episode of of everybody that we know in this community talking about like their most interesting hill stories or like oh. their first hill visit stories yeah. because. Yeah, it ta- I mean, it, it's like anything. It takes doing it in practice to become fully comfortable with mm-hmm. it. But I remember my first hill visit, Mm -hmm. I think I almost fainted. Mm -hmm. I had that situation where (laughs) you never know what's going to happen when you're in a meeting. And sometimes you remember Congress doesn't have enough time to sit for a full conversation. So this meeting turned into a walk and talk out in the hallway. And I was just totally thrown off my game. I feel like I was just sweaty. I was breathing really hard and I felt like I was going to (laughs) faint, but I got through it. And here I am, you know, almost four years later, still doing this regularly and really enjoying those moments where I can go in and and bringing people in to voice their opinion to our members of Congress. But, you know, it's good to do stuff that scares you, but it's uh, it's within all of us and it's, you know, our power, we have it to talk to our members of Congress. That's right. And if you don't go in, if you don't voice your opinion, then then you're just left complaining about it on Facebook. Yeah. Which, don't get me wrong, I do that, okay? Let's be clear. <laughs> I will do that. But what does that solve? What is what is going on to Facebook and complaining about politics do other than just like increase my blood session. pressure? Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like getting out and being proactive yeah. about something you care about, something you want to talk about. And again, you will always know more than them yes. about that issue. Yep. And they they want to learn from you. Yeah. And you, you may not get the response that you want, but you will have educated them. Right. And you better believe that whatever issue you care about, people that are not necessarily on board with your way of thinking mm-hmm. and maybe oppose what you mm-hmm. care about, they're going in there loudly True to talk to your members of Congress. So, you know, it's it's a really mm-hmm. important thing. Even if you don't have the time to go into an in-district meeting or go to the Hill, even a simple phone call or an email is yeah. really impactful, too. There's so many ways now. I remember, um, oh, I can't, it's called ResistBot or something, where you just text a number and you're like, 
I want to send a fax to, let's say, Elizabeth Warren, who is one of our senators, right? And I want to tell her that she should stand up for um, the national ocean policy. Um, and you can do that while sitting in front of the TV watching The Real Housewives of New Jersey, which I have done, <laughs> right? Like, you can be an advocate yeah, for your It's all about making couch. it as easy as possible, yes. I think, yeah. um, for people to, to really in, interact yeah. with their members of Congress. Right. Um, so thinking in, on that same, on, along those lines, mm-hmm. um, what are some ways that listeners can engage with you slash us and... Mm. Your slash our work. <laughs> How's that for of, a really clear question? That's yes. a lot of slashes. Yeah. Um, well, so there are a lot of ways that you can engage with us. Um, Jenna is really rad at um, our Twitter game is pretty <laughs> on point. Um, and so if you want to um, search for us, Healthy Oceans Coalition, we should pop up. Um, right, so you've all you've social, some social media platforms. Um, you can always call or email us. Um, you know our website, healthyoceanscoalition.org, has our emails. Um, we're always available to chat. If you're close to Boston, we're always down to go get coffee yeah. um, and talk about ocean conservation. Um, we host, like Jenna said, we host these trainings two times a year. Um, and we would love to host more of them. So if there are any foundations listening out there and want to give some money to a girl <laughs> doing a thing. Help us out. Um, <laughs> we're always looking for donations to try and ramp up more trainings because we love them so much. We find them to be um, pretty awesome. So it also, if, so if you're out on the West Coast, perhaps listening to this podcast, we are hosting a training out there um, near the San Francisco Bay Area. We haven't totally honed in on that. Um, but if you're an advocate and you want to learn more about federal ocean policy and hone some skills on talking to your decision makers and communicating to um, communications around that, um, please, please email us. Yes, that's in November. So yep, you got some time. Um, but reach out to us because we're always open to bringing new people into the fold to mm-hmm. our training. So mm-hmm. we'd love to include you. Yeah. Um, all right. So now on to the big three, which okay. I have just decided the big three. to call the series of three questions okay. that I ask all of my guests at okay. the end of my show. <laughs> okay. All right, I'm ready. I feel like we should be on like, who wants to be a millionaire and like all the yeah. lights should come down. It's like, um, what do you do think? Do I get a phone a friend? <laughs> yeah, call, 50, 50. you can call Jen Felt or <laughs> Helen Henderson. Um, <laughs> okay, all right, no, I'm sorry. I'm ready. Um, serious, serious face. What do you think are the most pressing environmental challenges that we are faced with? Giving a shit. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah. I know that sounds crass, mm-hmm. but like there are a lot of issues. Right, so I could say ocean acidification. I could say climate change, right, which is ocean acidification is affiliated with. Um, But I think we just need more people to care. And not just care, but care enough to do something. Care enough to call your member of Congress. Care enough to do an ocean cleanup. 
care enough to engage in your community, which we spent a lot of time talking about. There's so many ways to connect with neighbors and to pick up a park, right, that makes you feel connected into your community. I think, and I'm guilty of it myself, You, we retreat behind our screens and, okay, sure, I clicked on, you know, this Instagram post about healthy, you know, climate change or whatever. I, I took a quiz this morning, Jenna, about um, <laughs> how much do I know about climate change? It was like a CNN <laughs> quiz. Those always make me nervous because I'm like, what if I fail? Yeah. Oh, my God, I got 50%. <laughs> I work in the field and I got 50%. Um, and so, right, so you can always learn more. And so I think caring enough to learn more, caring enough to do something is is the biggest um, issue because you can choose what you want to care about. You can choose what you want to do, but it's actually doing it. Um, and so I guess I would say, um, oh, and inclusion, mm-hmm. right? That's um, a big one. I love the ocean conservation community. Um, and there are an incredible amount of badass ladies who are doing a lot of really great work. Um, but we are disproportionately white. Oh, yeah. I think this community is its made up of a lot of upper to middle class yeah. white people. And especially mm-hmm. in our world, it's a lot of white women. Yeah. Um, Which is awesome. However, um, that doesn't represent the United States. It doesn't represent society. That doesn't represent the voices and the experiences. Um, and so... I think that is an issue mm-hmm. for the conservation community. I think that's an issue of, of access. That yeah, just thinking about who isn't at the table, and you know, when you're going in mm-hmm. to meet with these high level decision makers, yeah, whose opinion needs to, and voice needs to be heard, mm-hmm. and how do we get them there? Yeah, I don't have any answers about it, but I, <laughs> I see, I see those things as big issues. Yeah, and you know, maybe this ties into my next question, which is, what are you hopeful for moving forward? And I think mm. that goes, goes into it is that appropriate, you know, the appropriate people are sitting at the table. The accurate reflection of what our community's makeup is, mm-hmm. is has a seat at the table. Yeah. But that, that's me taking over that question. So. Yeah. No, <laughs> I know, but I, I totally think that's fair. Um, I, I, I'm, yeah. And I am hopeful that, you know, the, the, the arc of justice, the long arc of you know, the pendulum will start to swing the other <laughs> way when it comes to priorities that yeah. the federal government has. I am hopeful that that will change. Um for people who know and love me, they will notice that I have refrained from doing um, any bashing of particular people on this <laughs> podcast. Um, because I, I don't think that that's really actually helpful. Yeah. You know, it's about it's about the policies. Yeah, and these are real discussions where I'm sure, you know, we have people that are from all different political totally. backgrounds and belief systems that listen to the show. So I also, I mean, it, I, it comes out time to time. I'm sure my listeners mm-hmm. generally have an idea of how I lean yeah. and my feelings about things, but I try to make this be a respectful space where we can talk more substantively about the issues yeah. um, versus the politics. But sometimes mm-hmm. that bleeds into, you know, they're kind of one in the same 
Um, so we're right, allowed but, to voice our opinion right. on those things. So if you have some things you want to say, you can get it out. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I hear yeah. you. Um, so this last one, okay. technically it's a two-part question. Okay. So it's the big four, but the big three is a better ring to it, so I'm not going to change it. Um, <laughs> what is the best advice that you've ever been given? Wow. Hmm. Um... I think the best advice I have ever been given is by my mother, um, who is an everyday inspiration to me, um, that I can, I can, I can do it. I am strong enough. I am smart enough. I am badass enough to do whatever I want when I set my mind to it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when the 18-year-old me was excited about going to college several states away, but also scared of leaving my family, my mother was like, you can do it, right? This is what you want, you go out and do it. Um, And I think for a young girl in the society in society where we are not always told that we can do it or valued for what we can do to have that role model um telling me since I was little that I can do anything I want which may not be true because I can't fly right like there are clear <laughs> limitations to yeah. that but as you know, a parent, it's all you don't in the give mindset. Your, you don't give your kids that caveat. Developing the confidence and the belief yeah. in themselves. Yes, exactly. Yes. Right. Yes. So, I think that's incredibly important because that stuck with me, and that has helped me make some of the big, scary decisions that I've made in my life because I had, um, you know, a strong woman in my life, you constantly telling me that I could do it. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side of that, because we have so many incredible listeners that are clearly interested in learning and, you know, I get, I'm positioned in a place where I get to bring on all of these amazing people with Mm -hmm. really great perspectives. Um, What parting advice do you have for the listeners? Probably the same that my mother gave me. Mm -hmm. You can do it. You can do it. You I feel like that, it. um, what is it, Rob Schneider's character <laughs> in, uh, I don't remember what Adam Sandler movie that is, but you can do it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, that sounds so like, oh, is that really the advice this lady is going to leave us with? Like, how lame is that? It's not lame. It's important. Um, it's like, sometimes yeah. the most beautiful things are the most simple things. Yeah. And at the very base believe in yourself yeah because even if no one else does you can do it mm. it might not be easy it's probably going to yeah. take a lot of work whatever it is yeah but if you want it you can do it yeah you can do it and seek out the people who will support you in that endeavor yeah and cut find, the fat <laughs> that's right find mentors mm-hmm. find people who are in the community you want to be in 
and make it happen. And yeah. That, I mean, that is super oversimplifying yeah. how hard it is to do that. But, like, baby steps, right? Absolutely. Just like you learn to walk. Progress Not by day. running. You, right, little steps toward, toward your goal. Yeah. And just believe that you can do it and find the things that will support you yes, in doing Yes, supportive communities and tools and opportunities if they're mm-hmm. available to you. And then it's amazing what will happen if you remove yourself from toxic situations or people mm-hmm. that are bringing you down or holding you back or telling you that you can't do it. Yeah. Um, just even having the, the people around you saying something as simple as you can yeah. and supporting you in your endeavors. Mm-hmm. It makes a world of difference. It really does. I mean, I don't know that I would have gotten through law school if I hadn't had that mentor and that externship when I was in Oregon. I was lucky enough to work for Jana Searles, who, if you're in the ocean community, you probably know who she is. She is, like, the badass lady. Um, and she believed in me, and she helped me cultivate that and, you know, helped me recognized that I could do these things even though they felt foreign and hard and didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, If you find those people and you have those mentors, um, it makes a real difference because, you know, it's a lot harder to do it on your own if you build a community around you with people who are going to support you on your worst day and cheer you on and then you can do the same for them. Making those major milestones and trying to get to, you know, wherever you're trying to get to becomes easier because you are supported by a tribe of people mm-hmm. who want to see you succeed mm-hmm. and you want to see them succeed. So, well yeah. said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sarah, I absolutely adore you. Oh, ditto, Jenna. You just are such an amazing person to have in my life. You are just, I, I, feel like I'm struggling for even the words of how much I admire you and just appreciate that you are such a great friend and and colleague to me um and I mutual adoration society (laughs) my friend it's a big love fest here (laughs) on this show today um and you know I've been looking forward to having you on my show for I think ever since I started it and speaking of people that have been supportive and and really you know the ones that are there saying you can do it I feel like you've been nothing but supportive of me so um, I recognize that and appreciate you for it and just thank you so much for spending time with me today and I look forward to sharing this with our listeners my pleasure this was awesome Um, I would also like to thank the listeners if this is a show that you want to hear more of um, Please subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts. Rates and reviews are always appreciated. And you can find us on Facebook at the American Shoreline Podcast Network um, and on Twitter at Coastal News 365. You can find me personally on Twitter. It's at Yenna Benna. That's Y-E-N-N-A-B-E-N-N-A. I always feel so silly when I say this at the end of the show because that's kind of a goofy name but it's not changing um and then on instagram it's the same thing but yenna has three ends in it so go ahead and find us online and we can chat about our beautiful coastlines mm-hmm.